comes jumping off my Chinese house. Two ducks in my spyglass, furry as a mouse, it's a suey nature, a suey nature thing. It's a suey nature, a suey nature thing. It's a mighty fine, mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. It's a mighty fine, Welcome to Yarns at Yin Hu, a podcast about the fiber arts and other post-apocalyptic skills. Episode 173, Perennials. Sunday, July 16th, 2017. I'm your host, Sarah. You can find me on social media as Sarah Pomegranate. The Yarns at Yinhu podcast has a Facebook page, and it's available on iTunes. Each week, I post show notes, photographs, and links to the things I talk about on my website, yarnsatyinhu.com. Today's episode features the following segments. The Front Porch, Yarn Lover at Large, and so forth. Hello, everyone, and welcome. It's so great to talk with you on this sunny Sunday morning. It promises to be a really glorious day in the Delaware Water Gap here, and I've Been up to quite a few things since recording my last episode, so I'll tell you about some of them today. And um, oh, if you were a winner of a prize announced in the previous episode 172, you should know that I have sent out prizes. Everything has been mailed. Maybe some of you have already received your prizes. I do have tracking numbers and shipping information. If you grow concerned about your prize and its whereabouts, let me know and I will follow up with more details. Since recording the last episode, Samuel told me about an article he had seen in the UK Telegraph about women in their 40s and 50s being part of this ageless generation. And I've linked the article in the show notes. I have some misgivings about it because in some ways, ultimately, the thrust of this article seems to be more about consumerism and less about age and empowerment. But there's some interesting information in there. The article is by Leah Hardy, and she reveals this this term that's actually been coined by a U.S. internet entrepreneur named Gina Pell. And the term is perennials. It's a term used to define 40-plus women who feel that descriptions based on their age are too restrictive. Here's how... Gina Pell defines the perennial. Perennials are ever-blooming, relevant people of all ages who know what's happening in the world, stay current with technology, and have friends of all ages. 
We get involved, stay curious, mentor others, and are passionate, compassionate, creative, confident, collaborative, global-minded risk takers. The article also cites a study that was conducted by Ellen Langer of Harvard University uh, having to do with women over 40 and their attitudes. And here are some numbers that were uncovered. 96% of 40 plus women don't feel middle-aged. 80% feel that society's assumptions about middle-aged women do not represent their lives. (laughs) These won't come as a surprise to many of us, right? 67% consider themselves to be in their prime of life. 84% say they don't define themselves by their age, and 91% don't believe advertisers understand them. An aspect of the study that it doesn't, this article does not go into detail, but is interesting to me, it says those in the study who wore uniforms and dressed the same as their colleagues suffered fewer age-related illnesses. And I thought that was interesting because this idea of uniform is something that is being discussed in terms of a handmade wardrobe, that you could take this notion of a uniform that you wear every day for professional dress and apply it to your preferences for personal dress, that you have a uniform, an aesthetic, um a collection of a type of garment that you feel suit you, you feel comfortable, they're practical for the lifestyle you have. And in deciding on that uniform, you're not considering things about age appropriate or whether it's in style or trendy. You're just really making those decisions solely based on personal preference and comfort. So that interested me. That's something I would like to know a lot more about. Have you seen this article? Uh, Like I said, I'll link it in the show notes if you'd like to take a look, and I'd love to know your impressions and opinions about this topic. So that provided the inspiration for um, this week's episode title and also the cover photo. I've been working on planting some Additional perennials in the one mostly sunny spot in my garden. So, over the past couple of weeks, some rutabecchia and some echinacea have gone into that garden spot. It was previously occupied by indigo plants last year. And so now I'm trying to expand into something a little bit new. One thing I love at this time of year is seeing so many garden photos and fresh produce photos in my Instagram feed. It's a constant source of delight and inspiration. The front porch. On the front porch is a knitting project that I was contemplating when I recorded my last episode and I decided to give it a try, no swatching, just start the project and see how it works out. And so far I've been very pleased. I had been looking for the perfect project for my Shackleton yarn. This is 
yarn designed by Sarah Hunt of a Fiber Trek podcast. And she took the journey of Shackleton as an inspiration for this yarn. It's Nash Island yarn with a 10% silk content. So it's kind of rustic, kind of elegant in this beautiful, absolutely beautiful silvery gray color. And it is knitting up very nicely in Melanie Burke's new pattern design called A Twist to It, which is essentially an elongated rectangle, a stole shape. It has a combination of lace and stockinette and then a very narrow garter stitch border. And in that garter stitch border are buttonholes on two sides and then space to sew buttons on the other two sides so that it can be buttoned into a variety of shapes. You can make a poncho, you can double it as a cowl. It also is a nice little lap blanket or a pillow, eminently versatile accessory. Melanie Berg's design calls for two very fine yarns to be held double to create a DK weight yarn. I could not think of anything really suitable or special enough to be held with this Shackleton yarn. So I thought I would try just knitting the pattern as written on slightly smaller needles. So I'm using the Shackleton yarn and US size four needles and it's knitting up beautifully. I did reduce the width of this item by eight stitches so you can cast on multiples of eight so I cast on 120 stitches instead of the suggested 128 hoping to get just a little more in the way of length I might also uh, do more lace and a little less stockinette than the pattern calls for because um, that might give me a little more length when you block that out the lace is a more expansive than stockinette, so I think I might do the beginning lace repeats more times than suggested. I took a section of the knitting I've done so far and just gently steam blocked it so I could see how the yarn relaxed into the lace pattern and it's absolutely gorgeous. So I'm very happy and Nearly done with the second of five balls of this yarn, so about two-fifths complete with this pattern so far. Once again, that's a twist to it, a pattern designed by Melanie Berg. I'm knitting that in my Shackleton yarn from Upton Yarns and Sarah Hunt on U.S. size four needles. It's Tour de Fleece, and I have been working on two spinning projects this month. I've been spinning quite a bit more on my drop spindle than my wheel because I've been spending so much time away from home. So I thought it would be a good idea to have a project on the spindle and a project on the wheel and just work on each as time allows. I don't have any particular goal for Tour de Fleece other than trying to spin every day. Of course, it would be nice to get both of these quantities completely spun up. 
but if I don't do that by the end of the tour, I'll just keep working on it over the course of the summer. Both of these are breed-specific fibers. On my little Jenkins Aegean spindle, my Turkish spindle, I'm spinning two ounces of Clun Forest that I picked up at the New Hampshire Sheep and Wool Festival. This Clun Forest is absolutely lovely. It's very clean, soft. Clun Forest is quite springy. In examining the fibers, I would say it's a three to four inch staple length. And the prep on this is just some quite fine roving. So it's really, really easy to spin on the drop spindle, almost effortless. And I'm getting uh, a really nice, fine single. I think it will probably ply up into a heavy fingering to sport weight yarn. That's pretty much my default, especially when spinning on a Turkish spindle. Uh, it may seem as though it's going to be thinner and finer, but I don't put too much twist on my singles when I'm spinning them. So I often get a softer, plumper yarn than I anticipate I will get. But it's just gorgeous for knitting. It's not particularly strong, so it's certainly not made for hard-wearing garments the way I spin it. Um, but it's, it's just really beautiful and lovely to knit with. I think that Clun Forest spun uh, with a tighter twist and maybe multiple plies would be an incredibly hard-wearing fiber. I think it could be suitable for socks and mittens and other things like that. It um, has a, a slight luster to it. This was kind of an impulse purchase at the Sheep and Wool Festival, but I'm, I'm really glad that I tried it. I have not spun Clun Forest before, and I'm really enjoying the process. On my wheel, I'm continuing a project I started several months ago, but didn't spend time really working on it on my wheel. So most of it uh, lay ahead of me when the tour began. I'm spinning a set of Three colors, six ounces of Hog Island roving from the Ross Farm. The colors are a cream, kind of a medium brown, and a much darker brown. And I have taken my hand cards to some of it and blended two additional colors. So I have roving and then I have Rolex of the blended colors and my process is to spin from light to dark on two different bobbins so I've divided all of this fiber in half and I hope to eventually end up with a very long gradient two-ply yarn it's six ounces, so I'm, I'm hoping for some really good yardage. I'm doing a lot of picking out 
veg matter and um, some broken bits. I maybe wasn't as gentle with it on my hand cards as I could have been. So I do have some some neps, especially in the stuff that I've hand carded. So I have been picking out quite a bit. I'm not sure if that will really interfere with my potential for yardage. Uh, but this has been fun to spin. The Hog Island is incredibly short stapled. Uh, it also has a springiness to it, but I would describe Hog Island as having more of a spongy feel. Uh, not unpleasant, but quite distinctive. I It's the only fiber that I have spun that I would describe as having a spongy quality. So there's a lot of loft, and I think it you know, can be incredibly warm when spun, woolen spun. And even this roving that I have, the fiber is very disorganized. So it's coming out as a woolen, not a worsted spun. And I think it will make uh, perhaps a sport to DK weight to ply. It's spinning quite consistently. I think with shorter fibers, it's always more of a challenge to spin a consistent weight. But um, I'm pleased with the way that it's going. I'm learning a lot. And so far, I am almost finished with the first half. I'm on the darkest uh, part of the gradient. And it it's interesting to me that from lightest to darkest, the fibers seem to be growing more uh, soft and also possibly a little bit longer staple length. So the, the lightest color fibers seem to be the most coarse in this selection and the darker colors seem to be a little bit longer staple and maybe a little finer uh, in the micron count. That's what I'm noticing with this batch that I have. It would be interesting to see what Amy and Scooter say about those sheep and if they agree that the sheeps kind of fit that description in terms of their the characteristics of their fiber. So once again, for my spinning, I'm spinning some Clun Forest from, oh, I didn't mention the farm. It's from Cluck and Ba Farm in Hollis, New Hampshire. And I'm spinning a Hog Island gradient set, six ounces, three colors from the Ross Farm. Yarn Lover at Large. I've been doing a lot of traveling about during the month of July. Earlier in the month, I went to a conference in New York City and was able to visit with Melissa and with Allison and visit both of the shops where they work, Nitty City and Pearl Soho. There was a really interesting craftivism event with a professor from FIT talking about craftivism and, and using craft and handwork for raising awareness and for activism purposes. 
Unfortunately, I had a real New York experience in uh, taking the subway up to Nitty City and there was something on the tracks and over a half hour series of delays. So I only ended up at the shop at the very tail end of this interesting conversation. Got plenty of visiting time with Melissa and Allison, but missed the event. On the subway, though, it was really interesting to observe the reactions of all of the other transit riders when there were these series of announcements of something on the tracks and it's being investigated and we'll get going as soon as we can, which everyone knew was an empty promise. And people just were grumbling and heaving sighs and looking at their phones and I felt very smug pulling out my knitting and getting some knitting time in on the train. I didn't, I'm not comfortable enough with subway travel to really take a look too much around me and see if I'm being observed. I just kind of like kept to myself and did my knitting. But for that half hour, at least I felt kind of like a real New Yorker. I just returned from visiting Mary Beth for a few days in Pittsburgh and This is the second time I've gone out to visit her, and she has her very long list of things, fiber-related things that we will see and do. This visit included another trip to the Society for Contemporary Craft, just a very short walk away from her apartment in the Strip District. And last year, we had seen uh, an exhibit with multiple artists. I think it was a biennial or maybe a triennial. This time was a exhibit of work by a single artist, Sonia Clark. She was born in 1967 and her work is fiber arts, a variety of um, media, a variety of media in the fiber arts. And her messaging is that that really interesting ground between personal and political. So a fascinating exhibit. Some of the most interesting to me were things she's done with human hair. In fact, the promotional poster for the exhibit looks like a ball of roving, a ball of very thick roving, but it's actually a ball of yarn that has been made with human hair. And she has several works in the exhibit that feature human hair and an ongoing conversation about black hair, uh, the politics of hair, um, all kinds of, she confronts all kinds of issues having to do with identity. And several of the pieces that really resonated with me involve using combs. She has, I don't know, probably thousands of very simple black plastic combs. And one that struck me was a 
it was kind of a conversation with Albers. You may be familiar with the Albers Cowl. If not, check it out on Ravelry, which has a series of concentric squares in different colors. And the very first piece in the exhibit features thread wrapped around combs and the combs are stacked so that it creates an Albers-like image. It's really interesting. It's I wouldn't call it exactly embroidery, but it pulls from the concepts of embroidery to create this colorful image, and then you realize it's actually wound around these black combs, and then they keep coming up again and again and again in the exhibit. Another of my favorites was very difficult to photograph. So I did put a photograph of the Albers piece in the show notes, but this other one combined the literary. So it's a CJ Walker quote that's been kind of embroidered into combs and then mounted on the wall in this uh, step-like configuration. And the the thread that's used is like a very dark brown. So against these black combs, it doesn't make that much of a contrast, and you really have to get very close to the work to read it and to be able to see what it says. So it just pulls you in, and you can't keep your distance from this work. So that was very powerful to me. Another one that she took a number of years to do and worked with a group of people to unravel a Confederate flag into a pile of red, a pile of white, and a pile of blue thread. And in reading the notes for this exhibit, it was apparently much more difficult to do than she anticipated. Like I said, she had a number of people working on it. And in the exhibit, it appears as just piles of thread. Um, And the title of the piece is Unraveled. So incredibly, incredibly powerful. If you are near Pittsburgh, I recommend that you make a visit to this exhibit And uh, if you ever have a chance to take a look at the work of Sonia Clark, for the fiber artist, I think it really resonates. Um, The political, the personal, the fusion between those two, and the commentary about how our identity um, is, is shaped and how it can be a reaction to the things around us. Super powerful. Another great thing about visiting this Society for Contemporary Craft is that there's always an artist in residence there working for a period of several months every day that the museum is open. They're they're working. I, I forget the name of the artist who's there right now, but he's crafting a series of architectural landscapes using all kinds of reclaimed, recycled material. 
And he's just working there with his exacto knife and his glue and his cutting mat. And he had a whole pile of materials right in front of him, including this maxi pad box. <laughs> and uh, I was commenting, Mary Beth and I were talking to him for a while, and I was commenting on the maxi pad box. And I said, Who would have thought? And he said, Well, actually, what interests me most about this box is this amazing blue color of the box. And he just talked about when he sees recyclable materials, he's just looking at them through this very different lens of their possibility. And so forth. Thanks to Mary Beth, I completed my first hand-stitched Alabama Channon project. Without Mary Beth's enthusiasm for this, it's something I probably never would have attempted on my own. I admire the Alabama Channon method. I think it's extraordinary and beautiful, but it wasn't something that I was about to take on on my own. However, working with a friend, it became manageable. And we visited Firecracker, which is a fabric studio in, in one of the Pittsburgh neighborhoods, purchased some really sturdy, lovely Andover cotton, I think it's cotton interlock. I don't know. It has a 66 inch width and is a really substantial cotton knit fabric. Because of the width, I managed to cut all of my pieces using the wrong directional grain because I folded the fabric lengthwise, not realizing, not remembering that the width of the fabric was so substantial. And then I spent the rest of my sewing time worrying that, of course, this fabric would stretch the wrong way and it probably wouldn't fit over my butt and... Here I am putting all this time in hand stitching for nothing, but of course I just kept going. And it was fine. It turned out fine. It's actually a really flattering fit. We made the short skirt from one of the Alabama Channon pattern books. It's four pieces, two front and two back. Based on the measurement directions, I cut two medium pieces for the front and two large pieces for the back. And then I went with the aesthetic of putting all of the stitching and all of the knots on the front side of the garment, stitched in kind of a creamy white thread on a navy blue fabric, so everything is incredibly visible. But what I learned is that over the course of all of this stitching, my stitches became much more even, and it was kind of fun to show all of that work on the front of the garment. We did not have the double-fold elastic that's recommended for the waist of this skirt, but even so, it fits and isn't in any danger of falling down. 
I don't think I would tuck anything into this or necessarily reveal the top of this garment until I finish it with the elastic, but I'm wearing it. It's beautiful, comfortable, really a staple wardrobe piece because the navy matches the the denim that I've put on a, the back of a number of my willow tanks. So I use a, some sort of interesting fabric on the front and then just this lightweight denim on the back. So the skirt pairs beautifully with all of those tops. And I think this will not be my last Alabama Channon garment. We did not do any embellishments, although I could still add embellishments to this skirt. Uh, in the book Mary Beth had, there were a number of designs that you could enlarge and then trace and cut. I haven't gotten into any of this stenciling or anything like that, but it would be possible just to even embroider something on one of the panels of this skirt. It could continue to be a work in progress, and it's certainly a flattering shape and easy because you don't have to do any hemming. Um, knit has proved easier to work with than I ever anticipated. So that was a lot of fun, and I'm very grateful uh, to Mary Beth for encouraging me. It's now taking me to the Alabama Channon website to look at the fabric that's available there and all of the possibilities for other kinds of garments. So maybe that will crop up again in the future as I think about my mostly handmade wardrobe. It's a mighty fine, mighty fine nature thing. It's a mighty fine, mighty fine nature thing. Leaves lay down like a lady waiting for a naked man. River bends like an elbow, turning stones to sand. It's a It's a sweet nature, a sweet nature thing. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. It's a mighty fine, a mighty fine nature thing. Thanks for listening. Music for this episode is so sweet. Music and lyrics by Samuel St. Thomas, performed by Bovine Social Club. Eat well and stay strong as you hone your post-apocalyptic skill set this week.
Yeah. 